in the gospel according to St. Luke. But before we turn to the gospel of St. Luke, might I invite this great company of believers to pray with me. Would you pray with me, please? Yes, Lord, yes, to your will and to your way. Yes, Lord, yes, I will trust you and obey when your spirit speaks to me. With my whole heart, I will agree. And my answer, my answer will be yes, Lord, yes. Please, my mama taught me how to say please. Please silence in me, O God, any voice that is not your own. And please, please make me fearlessly faithful. For it is, always has, forever and only will be in the name of Jesus that I offer this and all my prayers. And all the people within the sound of my voice said together, Amen. So don't forget, I hope you haven't forgotten, that all of our messages for this revival have been built on 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 9, where it reminds us that God saved us and God called us to be a holy people, not because we deserved it, but because that was His plan before the beginning of time, that we should see His grace through Christ Jesus. He saved us. He called us. And tonight I want you to see more clearly than you've ever seen before what it is really like to walk side by side, step by step with Jesus. You've heard it said because you know this Bible and you love it. Take up your cross daily, says the Master, and follow me. But tonight I'm going to ask you to not just take up your cross. I'm going to ask you to pick up your fork. Let the church say amen. Go with me, if you would, to the Gospel of Luke. You know this story, and if you don't, you bout to. It's from the ninth chapter of the Gospel of Luke, and I'll remind you that I'm reading from the New Living Translation. It is verse 30, but, but let me just set the scene a little bit before we go. You know, the disciples have had a long day. Jesus had sent them out. He had given them power, and then they're coming back after all they've seen, all they've done, all they've experienced, man, they have put in a 60-hour week. And now they're coming back late in the afternoon, and they're going to report everything to Jesus that they've done. Remember, they've had a long week. It's late in the afternoon, and time for that easy chair and that easy listening music, but something's going to change. Verse. 
He slipped quietly away, and he went with them toward the town of Bethsaida. But the crowds found out where he was going, and they followed him. And, oh, are you paying attention? He welcomed them. Now, let me stop here for just a minute. It didn't say the crowds were following the disciples. Could we be real clear? It said the crowd was following Jesus. But remember that the disciples have already had a long week. They've already had a long day. And Jesus is slipping quietly away. And the disciples are going, Oh, Lord Jesus, he's slipping quietly away. My Jesus, we're going to have a little quiet time. And then the crowds find out, and they follow Jesus. So the disciples are still in the company of Jesus as he's slipping quietly away, and I'm wondering what's on their mind and in their hearts. I can only imagine. But the crowds found out where he was going, and they followed him. He welcomed them and taught them about the kingdom of God, and he healed those who were sick. Verse 12, late in the afternoon, the twelve disciples came to Jesus and said, aren't these lovely people, Jesus? Look at all of them. Lord, we've been working all day and all night for days in a row, and We've come and told you everything we've done. Look at all these sweet people that we still get to be in ministry with. (laughs) That is not what they said. (laughs) Late in the afternoon, the 12 disciples came to him and said, Send the crowds away to nearby villages and farms so they can find food and lodging for the night. Because we're tired, Jesus. And we don't want to deal with them. We don't even want them around us while we're sleeping. Can you imagine being in the middle of nowhere and somebody saying, go find you some lodging. That would be under a tree or by a river brook. Tell them to find some lodging for the night. There's nothing to eat here in this Remote place. I love that word, remote. It reminds me of a place where I hang my hat almost every night to the wood. Send them away. There is no food here to eat in this
place was packed, teenagers. But I, I looked out the window, and there was a little boy climbing on the monkey bars. And remember, I said it was a cold night. It was and he was hanging on the monkey bars because it brought him up high enough to look in the window and see everybody eating. And he tapped on the window. And he said, Miss Laura, can I come in? And I said, Laquanas, this is for fifth grading up. You know that, baby. We've told you. Then I went in the other room where we had a huge vat of chili. You know what I'm talking about, don't you? That if you don't keep stirring it, all the gunk ends up on the bottom. And so we kept stirring that vat of chili and feeding the room was full of young people. And so I went back in to check on the little boys. You know, we couldn't give them the whole pack. We had to open it and it happened. You know what I'm talking about. And Aquinas was still hanging on the monkey bars. It was cold. It was frigid. It was raw outside. Please, Miss Laura, please. I said, Laquanas, this is for fifth grade and up, baby. We've talked about this. You see, I'm talking to him through the window. When I came back the third time, Laquanas had gone home. But see, here's what I knew in my heart. There were 12 children in the house where Laquanas lived. And beside him, there were 12 more. And Laquanas really well. And if I had let Laquanas in, Mary, he would have gone to Then the rest of the children would come. That was the only night, I kid you not, in the 22 and a half year life of all God's children, United Methodist Church, where we ran out of food. We were on the bottom of that chili vat, and they were eating it like it tasted good. So that night I went home, Jerome, and I was dreaming. It was a nightmare, to be honest with you. And when I woke up, I said, God, I can't feed everybody. This is hard. I, I can't feed everybody. And I thought God was going to say, bless your little heart, sweetie. I know you can't. I understand. <laughs> that is what the sovereign God of the universe said to me. He said, I didn't tell you to feed everybody. I told you to feed a And so the next Sunday, I couldn't believe it. Laquana still came to church. She was five years old at the time. Had little dreadlocks, cute as he could be. And I said, Laquana's come up here with me, baby. Come on up here with me. And I said, Laquana's, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I sent you away on a cold night. If I had to go up to the family dollar and buy some more food, that's what I should have done, but I didn't care. And if any other lover of Jesus ever tells you they can't feed you, you ask them, do you really love Jesus? Jesus looked at the disciples. They'd been for days. They'd been doing things they didn't know they 
they could do and they rushed back to the side of Jesus to tell him everything they'd done. And as soon as they're telling everything they've done, it's Jesus all quiet away. And they quietly followed him because they thought the day was over and it was late in the afternoon. And then disciples, mind you, but Jesus. And it says Jesus welcomed them. And began to teach them. Began to heal them. And I don't recall that he ever looked up to heaven and said, God, I can't feed everybody. He said, if you want me to feed everybody, thank you for giving me these disciples. And then he looked at them and said, y'all feed them. Y'all do it. Y'all do it. And you know what? That's to us today. I'm not saying to you, and don't misrepresent what I'm saying, that you have to do everything. But you better be attentive to the ones that Jesus sends you. I re preached a revival in October. I went to a precious congregation and they were wanting to reach out more. They were wanting to be sensitive to the needs around them. And everyone that I talked to would define their life before and after the hurricane that had devastated Pembroke and Lumberton, North Carolina. Everybody that you would ride with, you say, see that road right there? It was gone. You see that store over there? No, you don't. It's gone. Everything they talked about it was before and after the hurricane. Well, they put me in a nice hotel and get up in the morning. I'd be having breakfast down there in the lobby, and I, I'd see groups of people, and I thought, I don't know what it is in my spirit, but they don't look like tourists. I couldn't figure it out. They'd be there the next morning, and one man in particular, you know what I'm talking about. He was one of those that listened to the sharing his story. Is that him? She do it. But anyway, he would just pour his heart out. I could just feel it. The last night of the revival, I would tell him, you feed him, you feed him, you feed him. You feel what people are feeling. You cry what people are crying about. You shout when people meet the Lord. You, you, you. But that night, right before I left the hotel to go to the revival, that group of people had gathered, and one of them was crying. And she was desperate, and she was sobbing. And I, I just had to go over, and I said, you know, I'm not really sure what is going on here, but I'd love to hear your story. They had been living in a hotel for three months as a result of Hurricane Matthew. Their homes had been obliterated. But they had been told that on November the 10th, they had to get out. That was the end of the funds that had been designated 
and their homes had not been repaired. The places where they worked were no longer there. And everything they had owned had been put into a pod. And when it was opened back up, it was mildewed beyond. They had nothing. So I put my arms around them and I asked the clerk at the desk, I said, would you uh, take a picture of me and my new friends? Oh, yeah. So we all huddled together and took a picture. When I got to the church, I said, can you put something on that big screen for me? And I put that picture of my new friends and of their community. And I said, they are two miles up the road. They've been there for three months. Who in here has met one of them? I said, today's your day. Today's your day. And when I call you next week, I am going to be anticipating that you will be feeding them, not just with food, but with the word, that you'll start a worship service in that hotel for these people that feel desperate and lonely and forsaken and forgotten and lost. <laughs> Ask Gary Wayne about it, the lay leader for our conference. And that is exactly what I can't do everything, God. Well, I didn't send you everybody. I sent you Laquanas. Sandy Plains, I know you can't do everything. But I know that there are 40 people staying at the Fairfield Inn that you can change their lives and how they feel about the church. Jesus said, take up your cross daily and follow me. But what I'm telling you to do tonight, pick up your fork. I read a book every week. It keeps me on the edge and on the top of things that are current, and it challenges my heart. And several months ago, I was asking the Lord to create fire within my congregations. And so I would process in to the congregation every single Sunday and I would process out every single Sunday say, come Holy Spirit, fill the hearts of your faithful and kill in us the fire of your love. <laughs> they heard it two or three times in a worship service. Kindle in us the fire of your love. And so as I was asking God to provide me with a book, I did what I do sometimes, and I went to Barnes & Noble, and I just closed my eyes, and I'm saying, God, you, you show me the one that you want me to have. And I touched it, and I opened my eyes, and I thought, okay, this is not real. So I closed my eyes, and I touched it again. It was the same book. It's called On Fire. On Fire. On Fire by Bill O'Reilly. It's the story of a little boy. He's nine years old. And he was watching some of the neighborhood boys play with a little gasoline and a little fire. And they'd throw a match on it and go, Pew! He said, that's the coolest thing I've ever seen. So Debbie Mac came home and he poured a little gasoline in the middle of his garage floor. 
And he took a match and he said, and it blew his house to smithereens and blew him onto the front lawn. And it burned 99% of his father. 99%. And he was in the hospital for five months with his entire body wrapped in bandages to try to restore some amount of skin, to try to restore without infection seeping in. And the nurses who tended to his care had to wheel him into a little bitty closet in the back of the hospital because of the screams and the cries that for five months took place as they peeled those bandages off, trying to restore new skin. And those two nurses had to take years of therapy after that because of what that was like for them and little Billy. But after five months, they determined that some of his skin had been restored enough that he was no longer in danger of infection. So he got to go home. And it was like a parade when he was going home. There was a whole line of every school official and student and friend and church member and the town council and the newspaper and the, the newsreel. Everything was rolling as he got to come home because nobody thought he would live more than three hours after he had arrived at the hospital. And as he goes into his home, he can smell something. Much of his face that you can see. And his hands are like boxing gloves. They're so bandaged. They're just huge bandages on his hands. But he sits down at the table for the first time in almost half a year. And his mama's fixed his favorite. She's fixed him some cheese potatoes. And he's sitting there at the table with his hands bound up like boxing gloves and this much of his face showing and he can smell. He can smell those cheese potatoes. And he looks at the right hand and he looks at the left hand and they look like boxing gloves. And he can't for the life of him figure out how to eat those potatoes. And he sits there a long time and his sister, God bless her, she's feeling sorry for him. So she picks up her fork and she starts to dip it in his potatoes and his mother says, put the fork down. If he's hungry, he will pick up his fork. And finally, everybody had excused themselves from the table except his mama. And he said, at that moment, I hated my mama. I hated my mama. But he sure did want some of them cheese potatoes. So he took those two boxing gloves and he figured out how to pick up that fork. And with his hands trembling, he got it up to his mouth and it tasted so good. So he took them big old boxing gloves and he got that fork again. And it took him about an hour 
and his mama sat there the whole time. And he ate his cheese potatoes. And later he writes in that book, if it had not been for my mama, I would have died that day thinking that I couldn't do anything. Pick up your fork and do something. Now, the other night when Miss Norma was talking about some things we'd done together, she talked about the, the trip to Disney where I took the seven children last summer to Disney. And I'm going to be honest with you. Can I be honest with you? I did not want to take those children to Disney. I had already taken about five trips, and I'm getting a little older, and I, I just wasn't equal to taking all them children to Disney. So I said to the Lord, Lord, I, I can't do this again. And the Lord said, excuse me? You didn't do it before. I did it, and I'll do it again. And so I taught 27 young people how to raise their money to go to Disney. Now, all they had to raise was $100. But for some of the children and youth that I serve, I might as well have asked them to raise a 1000 Because some of the children, if they went up to someone in their home and said, would you be able to help me with $5? Somebody would have taken a baseball bat to him. Don't you be asking me for money, boy. Not as easy as you think. But I showed them how to write letters and how to canvass the community and how to go to some of their school teachers and say, could I earn this? Five days before we were to leave on our trip, one of the mothers came to me with tears in her eyes. And she said, I'm, I'm sorry, Miss Laura. We can't go. She had three children. So that was $400. Ten years ago, I would have said, I'm going to help you. The hardest thing I've ever had to do, Pastor Jerome, was to look that mother in the eyes and say, I'm sorry, we'll miss you. But you got five days. And she had been in that study with me. And I said, pick up your fork. She canvassed every retail business, every gas station, every bank, every pharmacy within a 10-mile radius and raised 50 more dollars than she needed to help someone else. That Sunday, that very week, I had been invited to preach at Duck United Methodist Church. It was going on a three-month sabbatical, and he chose a date where he wanted me to preach, but he didn't realize what he chose was Pentecost. Ah. He was going to unleash me on the bright and beautiful on Pentecost Sunday. That night as I was getting ready for bed and Stephen's hands swollen and I was calling on the Holy Spirit, I said, Lord Jesus, 
fun. I I am $7,000 and we're leaving on Tuesday. And I don't know what to do about it. If you'll just give me some direction. Give me some direction. Give me some. I don't know what else to do. I had called everybody I knew to call. I'd written every letter I knew to write. I didn't know what to do. 7000 And the bishop said, does the Lord really talk to you like that? And I said, yes, ma'am, he does. But this is what the Lord said. So you will know that you didn't do this and that I said I would and I will. Somebody from very far away is going to help you today. That was all. Somebody from very far away. I preached me a Pentecost service. And I had 12 little flyers. You know, I preached to hundreds of people that day. But I had 12 little flyers at the front of the church because I said to the church within the context of the sermon, if the wind of the Holy Spirit decides to settle on somebody's heart today, we could use a little help. There's information in the front if you'd like. I didn't pass stuff out to everybody because I hadn't asked Pastor John if I could do that. So I didn't. And as I stood at the door and this elderly gentleman came up to me and said, how much money do you need? And I was embarrassed. I didn't want to tell him. I said, it's a lot. And he said, I asked you, how much money do you need? And I said, $7,000. He said, well, I live a long way away from here. I live in Korea. But I'll have my business manager send you a check for $7,000. Come, Holy Spirit. Fill the hearts of your faithful and kindle in us the fire of your love. And after years of service, the church gathers. And some of us are tired and some of us want to say to Jesus, send them away, Jesus, and you feed them and you give them lodging. And Jesus just smiles and says, you feed them, you counsel them, you help them, you love them. You show them mercy. And when you pick up your fork, then Jesus says, I'll give you a meal that you never knew you could have. <laughs> Let's just say tonight, this side over here, I want you to think for just a moment that I've taken you into a really fine restaurant. I mean, really nice. And I have, yeah, you with me, aren't you? And I have ordered every one of you ribeye and the softest baked potato you could ever want to have. And you've put cheese and bacon bits and butter and sour cream on it. And then there's the finest dessert. And 
And over here, I have taken you to New York. And I have taken you to one of those pizza places where those brick-cooked pizzas aren't like the kind we get here at Papa John's. Them brick-cooked pizzas are something. If you've never had one, you go to New York, and you'll know I'm telling you the truth. And I've got you one with all the toppings that are your favorite. I mean your absolute favorite. And there is an ice cold lemonade. <laughs> What's wrong with y'all church? And it's just waiting for you. You got it? You got your pizza? You got your steak, your baked potato? And then I'm going to say to everybody, I hope you enjoyed looking at that. Now you can all leave. It's just for you to look at. This is what feeds you. Prayer is what sustains you. Worship is what strengthens you. And sometimes we just want to look at it. And we wonder why we're hungry. And we wonder why the world is starving. And if there's in your heart tonight. Maybe it's a broken relationship. Maybe it's a sickness. Maybe it's the loss of a loved one. I did sit with a family for four hours and they had to make the decision to remove the ventilator from the dead. There's a hole in my heart. Maybe yours is from a dream that's broken and you've never reconciled why that had to happen. Maybe it's a dysfunction in your family. Or, ooh, am I going to say it? A dysfunction in your Sunday school class or in your church or in your school or in your job. Maybe the best friend you've ever had has betrayed you or your children have disappointed you, and there's just a, a hole there. Sometimes we want to say to God when we're hurting that bad, I hate you. I hate you for what you did to me. And God sits at the table with us long enough for us to feel the love that a mother had for a son who went through hell. But she knew how to get him out. And she waited for him because his fork. And his testimony is, he gave me back my life. Yep. Jesus says, pick up your cross daily and follow me. If you want to be strong enough to carry that cross, you might decide tonight 
the first, pick up your stuff and take in the word. Take in prayer as if it's the air you breathe. Take in worship as if the Holy Spirit and the fire of his presence is going to hover over you and allow you to grow. Pick up your fork so that whatever that hole is that's hurting you more deeply than words could express, fill my cup, Lord. <laughs> fill it up, Lord. Come and quench this thirsting of my soul. Bread of heaven. Feed. Till I want no more. Fill my cup, Lord. Fill it up. And make me whole. Church, I know some of the needs that are in here tonight. Yes, Jesus can do everything. And he said to his disciples, You can do. And so tonight, I say to you, will you pick up your fork and trust Jesus to give you what you need when you say, here I come. There are enough forks up here for you to have them, just as sign and sign. That God has what you need. I believe tonight he's waiting for you to take it. In the name of the Father, the name of the Son, in the name of the Holy Spirit. If somebody comes up.